Ecclesiastes 3.16 through Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 3. I'm going to ask that you guys stand as you have it, and let's read God's Word this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they might see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. So dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who had not been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we study this word. Father, we ask that you help us now. Help me to speak your truth, communicate your truth, not merely my ideas, that you would shape us and according to Jesus as we hear your word. Let us receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do you sing in a Roman prison cell? Roman guards were trained to brutally keep a prisoner in place. Their own livelihood depended on prisoners not escaping, and they were known to be violent. In the New Testament, there's this story where Paul and Silas are wrongly imprisoned because of Jesus. It's an action of injustice. They're under a totalitarian regime. It's, it's a matter of oppression. And these men are thrown into jail, into a dungeon, what we would call a dungeon today. And in this prison cell, the guard fastens their feet within this block of wood that would have had holes uh, uh, cut through it for their ankles. And, and their legs would be spread 
and they would only be able to sleep, according to historians, sitting up or perhaps in a very uncomfortable position, laying flat on their back on a hard floor. This was no modern prison cell. But what I find fascinating in this story in Acts chapter 16, verse 26, is that Luke tells us that about midnight, Paul and Cyrus were praying and singing hymns to God. How do you sing hymns in the face of injustice? How do you sing songs of joy to God in the face and in the midst of oppression? The last two weeks, as we've been in Ecclesiastes, we've been focusing on the fact that all and every aspect of life and every moment of time is given to us as a gift from God to be enjoyed. And so we've been talking the last couple weeks about how to receive this moment, to live in it, to appreciate it, and to enjoy it. However, that leaves many of us with a question. How do I live in this moment of time? How do I receive every moment, every opportunity from God as a gift? And how do I learn to enjoy it when injustice and oppression still exist? How do I enjoy it when the sorrow of wickedness is ever before me? How do I enjoy life when the pain of my wounds from past trauma is still felt today? How do I have joy in God when I feel such anger toward the power, uh, the, the abuse of power in oppression? So in t today's passage, there's a turn, actually. There's a turn. He, he, he uh, clearly, moreover, he says in verse 16, uh, he's, he's turning in his emphasis, yet in the same, at the same token, he's kind of keeping the same theme of time. You remember last week we talked about all the different times of life. There's a time for this. There's a time for that. There's a time for this. There's a time for that. And we are to enjoy everything. And then he says, moreover, let's talk about all of the social ills of today. Moreover, let's talk about what's on your mind, and that's injustice and oppression. And what he says is, he's kind of continuing this theme. There's a time. There's a time when God is going to come and judge. The author delves deep into the issue of injustice and oppression. He shows us in this passage that life without God is meaningless We've seen this all through Ecclesiastes. Life with God brings meaning. Life without God leaves us with emptiness and meaningless in the face of injustice and evil and oppression. It's all vain. Yet, verse 17, there's a final reckoning. In verse 17, he's basically saying, don't get me wrong. There is a God. And he says, God will judge. God will judge. How does God remedy a world of injustice and impression, uh, oppression? In other words, how can we have joy in this life, even though we live in a world of injustice and 
oppression. Let me give you four ways that God deals with this world, and then we're going to walk through the text and see them. Number one, he names it, he defines it, he exposes it, and he judges it. If you want those again, he names it, he defines it, he exposes it, and he judges it. How does God deal with a world of oppression and injustice? Number one, he names it. He names it, meaning God calls it like it is. In verse 16, he says, moreover, I saw under the sun. Somebody say under the sun. Remember, under the sun is a key word in Ecclesiastes. When he says that, he's referring to an atheistic view of life. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm pretending just for a moment, just for the sake of my experiment, that there is no God. And that all there is is what's under the sun, the horizontal with no vertical. What I can see to my left and to my right with nothing above the sun. All right? He says, I saw under the sun all of the wickedness, all of the injustice, all of the oppression, and he names it. He says, in the place of justice, there was what? What does he call it? Somebody? Wickedness. Somebody's in their Bible with me. Let's see if anybody else is. In the place of righteousness, even there was, what does he call it? Wickedness, wickedness, wickedness. Meaning, uh, you know, you might call uh, injustice, you might, you might call it unfair. God calls it wickedness. Unrighteousness, you might call that a mistake. God calls it wickedness. Justice in the Old Testament is a word that implies judgment, correct judgments that are made, correct judgments in the courtroom, correct judgments when deciding a case, correct judgments when sentencing someone who is convicted of committing a crime. In legal terms, justice is what's right. It's giving what is due. It's paying wages, justice. Righteousness is another word that he uses here. Righteousness is a word that's kind of a cousin to the word justice in the Old Testament. Righteousness is to do what is right. Righteousness is often applied to kings and to rulers and to government officials. Righteousness we often today think of as holiness, and there is a personal aspect of righteousness, personal holiness uh, that we are to strive for, yet righteousness also has a big, broad connotation as it relates to the courtroom, as it relates to speech, as it relates to all of our interactions with one another and our activities with one another, it is to do what is right. Now, the author is looking all around under the sun, meaning he, everything he can see with his eye on this earth. And he's saying, I see people who are pushed out and nobody cares. He's saying, I see people who are enslaved and nobody does anything. He's saying, I see, I see children that are crying, suffering under unjust parents, and nobody hears their cries. Everybody looks the other way at injustice. Everybody turns their head toward wickedness, and they pretend that they don't see it. But God 
calls it like it is. To call it like it is. You guys know that phrase. We, we'll say, oh, man, he calls it like it is. You know, like, dogs are better than cats. I'm just going to call it like it is. Amen? Like, dogs treat me like I'm a king. And my cat thinks he's a king, and I am his peasant to serve him. Right? I'm just calling it like it is. <laughs> I apologize, cat lovers. You have to take a stab at cats at least once a month. Um... On a more serious note, Frederick Douglass, um, I love, he says, the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. He called it like it is. You see, why was Frederick Douglass so powerful, so influential? It's because he wrote a lot. He spoke a lot. And when he did, he spoke truth and he named it. You see, naming something is powerful. To call it like it is. And God, through the preacher in Ecclesiastes, names this lack of justice, names this lack of righteousness. It's not just simply being unfair. It's not just making a mistake. He says it is wickedness. It's wickedness. And listen, saints, as we are working with one another, we need to call it like it is. I remember uh, working with a young guy who, when he was a child, his father choked him up against the wall until he passed out. And this young man saw himself as utterly worthless going through life. And the more I walked with him and talked with him, the more I realized that his father's action toward him communicated to this boy that he is nothing, that he is absolutely worthless. And the crazy thing is, is like he venerated his father and he loved his father. And, and, and he didn't even see it. He saw that as like something to be chuckled at. Like, oh, this is what my dad did to me. This is how, how, how big of a guy he was, how bad of a guy he was, you know. And I remember one day I was talking to him and I was like, bro, what your dad did to you was wicked. It was wicked. He communicated to you, a, a young boy made in the image of God, that you're worthless. And it was wicked. And you know, the more that this young man began to wrap his mind around this biblical category of wickedness, the more he was able to come to terms with what happened to him. Does that make sense? I love the Word of God because he names sin and he calls it what it is. That's what he does here. He looks around and he says, this is wicked. This is wicked. In ver chapter 4, I included these three verses from chapter 4 in our text for today because he continues with the same theme. In chapter 4, he turns to this, uh, this issue of oppression. In verse 1, he says, I, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Somebody say, under the sun. We're still there. We're, we're looking at the horizontal. And he says, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. 
You see, this world is incredibly difficult. That's what he sees. And even today, you know, we can kind of button it up and put a bow on it and make, make life look a little better than it is, but the reality is, is that today the world is an incredibly difficult place. Statistically, there are 700,000 victims of abuse every year. Statistically, every 73 seconds a child is abused. Poverty and child maltreatment go hand in hand. One study out of Hopkins showed some years ago that poverty is a more powerful influence on the outcome of inner city children than just gestational exposure to cocaine. To, to put that in just regular terms, born into poverty will have more of an impact on the outcome of one's life than being a crack baby. That's what it's saying. This world is an incredibly difficult place. And when we look at injustices, various issues of oppression, that have been placed on people, entire people groups, entire communities and neighborhoods. It's cruel. This is a cruel world that we live in. And, yeah, some, sometimes justices are done cluelessly. You know, people don't realize what they're doing. Other times people know what they're doing. They know what they're doing to a people group or to a child or to a person or to a woman. Absentee fathers increase the likelihood of mistreatment. Incarceration rates, drugs, and alcohol all contribute to mistreatment. So where there is drugs and where there is alcohol, you have much higher rates of oppression, injustice, and abuse of children. The misuse of power from police has led to the distrust of police, which has led to unreported cases of suffering and mistreatment, which leads to cycles that continue, a world that is exasperated by violence. It's a mess. Psalm 74 verse 20 calls the world that we live in a habitation of cruelty. Now, check this out. Without God, without God, none of this matters. Without God, like you might, you might not even believe in God, but you might say, oh, no, I believe in justice. Well, why, wait, why, why do you believe in justice if you don't believe in God? You see, the very fact that you say you believe in justice means that there must be something that is just. You say, well, I believe in morality, but not God. Why do you believe in morality if you don't believe in God? The very fact that you believe in morality means that there must be some kind of moral law giver. I believe what is right. Well, who defines what is right? You see, the atheist, and this is the worldview that he's playing with here, the atheist can't make a statement on justice. I mean, it's crazy today when the secular world is trying to lead the conversation on issues of what is right, when we throw out God. No, Christians lead the world on what is just. We are to be the people talking about justice. We are the, to be the people talking about oppression and how to remedy these issues of oppression and what is wrong and to correct 
these, these things. You see what I'm saying? Why? Because these are our words. These are our ideas. They come from the Judeo-Christian background. They come from the Bible. Don't you realize that Christianity has so leavened culture that, we, that, that secular people talk about Christian things without even realizing it? These are our ideas of what is, that, that, that there is something, that there is something that is just. There is something that is right. And something that is wicked. I love God's revelation in the Bible. I love it. It is so real. It is so honest. The Bible is, is so illuminating as it shows us what life is. Like we read the Bible and we're like, yeah, this is life. And not only that, but we see in the Bible God's standards. And God calls it like it is. He calls oppression, a lack of righteousness, and a lack of justice. He calls it wickedness. Secondly, he defines it. He names it. And he defines it here. In verse 16, he calls it, again, wickedness. Well, what does wickedness mean? Wickedness is typically defined as a mental disregard for justice, righteousness, truth, honor, and virtue. Wickedness is to be evil in thought and life. It is depravity. It is sinfulness. Meaning God is here and God's moral standard is here and wickedness is everything that falls Short. It is committing a crime, not against necessarily the government, not against necessarily even one another. It's committing a crime against an eternal God, which is why R.C. Sproul defines wickedness as cosmic treason. And he, he defines oppression here in verses 1 through 3. Let me read these verses again to you. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On their side, on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them, referring to the oppressed. Verse 2, he says, I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. What he's saying here is that oppression is always an abuse of power. Meaning power is not the problem. The abuse of power is the problem. And every abuse of power can be defined as oppression. And oppression is defined as an abuse of power. Consider the father choking his son. That father has been given a God-given power, a power to influence the son toward righteousness, a power to lead his son in the ways of Jesus, a power to lead his son in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, a power to show that little boy that he's valuable and worthy and loved by God, and he's choking him. This is an abuse of his power. And as powerful as the father is to communicate what is good to the child in the same way that power, that father has the power to mar his child for years to come, to destroy him, it's oppression. 
Consider factory workers in terrible conditions. The power is in the hands of those who are withholding their livelihoods from them and requiring long hours for them to just basically survive. Consider a relief agency withholding necessary funds from those who need it. That's an abuse of power. Consider any government that has set up a totalitarian regime. It's an abuse of power. It's oppression. Power isn't the problem. The abuse of power is the problem. We all have power. Whether you're a child in this room, whether you're a grown adult in this room, we all have power in various ways. Power is part of being human. Abuse of power is oppression. I'll give you another example. Consider the drug problem in America. This is, this is to just show how deep this goes, all right? Consider the drug problem in America. Let's, let's take corrupt law enforcement abusing their power over the corner boy. The corner boy abusing his power over the addict. The addict abusing their power over their families. The drug abusing its power over the user. The cartel abusing their power over the whole thing. It's wickedness. It's an abuse of power. It's oppression. It's, it's all around us. We're in it. We take part in it. Other examples could be pornography. The, the pornography industry could go to do the same thing. Prostitution, etc. Verse 2 and 3 is called by some the saddest verses of the Scripture. He says, you know, looking at what's underneath the sun, he says, man, it would be better to be dead. And actually, better than the dead are the ones who have never been born, who never had to experience how cruel this world actually is. Now, he's not, he's not speaking orthodoxy. What I mean by that is this is not intended by God to be taken out and put into our statement of faith. It's not, it's not orthodoxy. He's speaking from the worldview of an atheist. He's saying, if there is no God, if we remove the horizontal, uh, the vertical, and all that's left is the horizontal, all that's left is what's underneath the sun, and I see all of the oppressions, all the tears, no one's there to help, the power's in the hands of the oppressed, nothing is more powerful than the ones who have the power and are using it to oppress. That's what he's saying. In this kind of world, he's saying, it would be better to have never existed. He's not speaking orthodoxy, but he's compelling you to see the vertical. He's compelling you to look upward. He's compelling you to see above the sun and to see that there is a power that is greater than the power that's in the hand of the oppressor. You see what he's doing? This is like a work of apologetics here. He's he's persuading us to believe in God as he depresses us by showing us the world as it is. So he defines it. Third, he, and by he I mean God through the author. Third, he exposes it. Injustice. Oppression. Look at verse 18. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they might see them, that they themselves are but beasts. 
That word testing them could also be translated exposing them. God is exposing the children of man. He's exposing us. He's exposing humanity. He's showing us who we really are because we love to think of ourselves as so much greater than we are. You know, I was just talking to one of our uh, 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 folks this morning who we were talking about movies and how we're so often drawn to movies that really expose the corruption of humanity because we all know that we're pretty corrupt. We're all, we all know that, that we, we, we have a way to present pretty, pretty good, but if you take away the law and if you have one night where there's no law and everybody can do whatever they want, they're not going to be held accountable, you can only imagine how crazy it would be. We're drawn to these kinds of movies because we know that that's true. We're corrupt. So he's exposing, he says, the children of man, meaning humans, that God, God is testing them. Meaning oppression and injustice, even these things, are not outside of God's plan for the human race. They play a role in what God is doing. God is using an oppression and injustice to expose the human race to our corruption. Meaning God, man, God, it could be much worse. He could just take away common grace and let all hell uh, erupt on earth. God has, has restrained sin on earth out of common grace for humanity. But he doesn't restrain all of it for his purposes that we might know that we are but beasts. That's what he's saying here. We, as great as we think we are, he's saying we're, we're kind of like animals. Let's just think of the animal kingdom. It's brutal. They eat each other. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they kill their own kind over a piece of meat. And he's saying we're, we're no better off than the beasts in the way that we treat each other, in the way that we view the world. You know, sure, you know, someone will say, well, we build airplanes. We're better than animals. We, we figured out the Internet. That's pretty cool. Animals didn't do that. And that's true. But in, in a sense, we're kind of worse than the animals because we also fly planes into buildings and we use the internet for corruption. You see, humans have great potential, and in our sin, we use that potential for great amount of wickedness. So verse 19 through 21, what he's saying is, is that like the animals, we all die. And he's making a point here that it's just all vain. Like even those that use oppression uh, and evil to their advantage, they're, they're not getting anything out of it. It's just all vanity. It's meaningless. It's pointless, is what he's saying. Breath and dust is what we're made of. That's what animals are made of. We're made of the same thing. In verse 20, he says, and all go to one place. All are dust, and to dust all return. And in verse 21, he speaks again. He's speaking from the view of the atheist. He's speaking from the view of someone who is only looking at the horizontal. They're only looking at this earth. And he says, who knows whether the spirit of man will go upward, meaning will, will the soul return to God in some way, or do we go downward? Do we just all turn into dirt and go downward along with the beast? He's saying, you know, without any revelation of God, you have no clue where you go after death is what he's saying. And so what's the purpose of all of this stuff? And he goes on to say, so I saw there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, 
for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will, re, uh, what will come after him? He returns here to the theme of enjoying your work, which is a theme that we've been leaning into the last two weeks, but it feels a little darker this time, doesn't it? I think he's still speaking it with just as much truthfulness. I think he's saying that, you know, with all of the chaos, you might as well enjoy the work because that's, that's your lot in life. And I think he's more so speaking in terms of this horizontal under the sun reality and saying, look, you don't even know what's, what's in the future, so just enjoy what is. But it certainly has a much darker, bleak kind of feeling here. The Bible exposes the oppressors and the abusers. And what he's saying is that we are beasts and that there is no gain from all of this injustice. One thing that uh, Stephanie in our church has, has taught me over the years, she's very good at counseling, she's very good at listening. And one thing she's taught me over the years is that as Christians, and as I think maybe even Christian leaders, we so often just want to, we want people to get over it. You know, people coming in with wounds, people coming in with hurt and pains from suffering and injustice. And it's uncomfortable to stare at it. And we're too afraid of pity parties. And so we want to just keep moving fast and like we don't want to sit with people in their pain because it's uncomfortable. And so we just quote ver Bible verses and we just say, hey, you know, just, just do this, just do this, and you should be okay. And what Stephanie has taught me is that God stares at it in the scriptures. He stares at it. He has recorded oppression and injustice in his word that lasts forever, and he wants us to stare at it as well. He exposes it. I mean, think of it. Let me just give you five case studies from the word of God. Case study number one, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and all the residents of the city come, and they demand that Lot sends the visitor, the male visitors out, uh, so that they can do what they want with them. I think you know what I'm talking about. And Lot says no, looks at his daughters, his virgin daughters, and he says, you can have them. And he says to the abuser, he says, quote, you can do what you want with them. Case study number two, Judges chapter 19, a man unjustly sends out a nameless concubine, which would almost be like, a, a, in this case, it would be someone who probably came from poverty, someone who was reliant on him and he was using for sex. And he sends her out to the attackers. And all night long, Judges 19, tells us, Judges 19 tells us that she was raped and abused all night. In the morning, the man opens the door, and she's dead on the porch. And the scripture says that her hands were stretched out, seeking help. And no one was there. Helpless. Powerless. Case study number three. Joseph 
is sold by his brothers. He's sold by his brothers. Think about that. And then now, now he's in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife lies on him, lies about him, gets him locked up, falsely accused. He has no voice. He has no power. And now he's sitting in jail. Case study number four. A woman named Dinah is raped. Her vigilante brothers murder the rapist. Case study number five. A king named David abuses his power. He lusts after a woman, takes her, and then kills her husband to cover it up. Case study number six, like father, like son. An Amnon has a perverted passion toward his sister, and he uses manipulation and coercion to get her into the room, and then he rapes her. And then after he rapes her, the text tells us that he despises her. The object of his desire becomes an object of his disgust. And the story ends with her running away in tears, and she says, and I quote, as for me, where can I carry my shame? Where can the sufferer carry their shame, church? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, of those who are oppressed, he says, they had no one to comfort them. Where can the oppressed find comfort? Oh, we're not just living in a world of the horizontal, but there is the vertical dimension. There is a God over the sun. There is a God who cares about the world that we live in. And Psalm 119, verse 13, tells the sufferer where they can find hope. He says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. God is our hiding place. Where do we find hope in this world of cruelty? The answer is in Psalm 119. He says, I hope in your word. That's where we find hope. There is a place where the sufferer can run, and that's in the Word of God. What has the Word of God revealed to us? Well, it's not just simply a word that he's spoken, and we love the sound of his voice, and it just comforts us, but it's the content of what he's spoken. You see what I'm saying? And what has he told us in verse 17, chapter 3? He says he's coming as the judge. There is a judge. And that's my fourth point. What does God do in this world of cruelty? Number four, he judges it. He judges it. The old Baltimore journalist H.L. Mencken said that injustice is relatively easy to bear. What stings is justice. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Or as the NIV puts it, there is a time to judge every deed. Don't you see how he's continuing his poem from chapter 3? There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to speak, and there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to see all of the injustice, and there's a time to judge every deed. 
To judge means to make things right. To judge means, biblically, to end discrimination, to condemn and punish the wrongdoer. To judge means to have the final vote on a matter. To judge in the Bible means to vindicate what has been wronged and shamed. Without God, there are only tears for the oppressed. Without God, there are only tears for the sufferer, but with God, there is a hiding place. And the hiding place is in his word. Let me be more clear. There is a hiding place. And that hiding place is in the judgment of God. It's knowing that he will judge. He will make things right. He will end discrimination. He will condemn and punish. He will have the final vote. And he will vindicate you. John Calvin, speaking of Israel in the Old Testament in Genesis, he says the sons of Abram could not otherwise have been saved than by the destruction of others. Think about this. What he's saying is, is that good news actually comes with judgment. Don't you understand that the gospel contains judgment? Judgment is part of the gospel message. How can this be? How can the gospel be about judgment? Well, let me put it like this. If you were being chased and tortured and some greater power came in and was able to grab your abuser and deal with him and judge him, would that not be good news for you? You see, we are always, from Genesis through Revelation, saved through judgment. It's God's ability to judge the wicked that brings salvation. And so God then invites the sufferer to find refuge in him as the judge. The gospel takes the power out of the hand of the abuser. And he says, I have power. I am the judge. Let me give you another example in Exodus chapter 2. This is maybe another case study. In Exodus chapter 2. We see that the people of God, Israel, the Hebrews, they are enslaved in Egypt. And by the time you get to the end of Exodus chapter 2, it is so bad that their infants are uh, uh, being killed off and they're doing everything they can to, to try to be preserved as a people. Uh, they, they are abused and they are harmed and they are hurt and they are overworked. And by the end of chapter 2, we have yet to really see much about God. And it says that they cry out to God. That's how chapter 2 ends. They cry out to God. Well, actually, this is how chapter 2 ends. The very last words are this. He says, God saw and God knew. And if this was like a movie, it would be like, that's when the music begins. This is when the exodus begins. Meaning the Egyptians are exposed. They're not acting with some kind of unending power beyond the sight of God. The gospel, the good news of, exit, of Israel's departure from Egypt out of slavery begins. God saw and God knew. God saw and God knew. Lot's daughters, God saw and God knew. The nameless concubine who reached out 
and could find no help, God saw and God knew. Joseph, God saw and God knew. Dinah, God saw and God knew. Bathsheba, God saw and God knew. Tamar, God saw and God knew. You are suffering. God sees and God knows. In verse 17, he is coming to judge. If you are an abuser, God sees and God knows. And he will judge you. There is no abuse, oppression that you have committed that God will ever forget. Your only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your only hope is to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you this right now because I don't know who's in the room. If there are some things that you have to confess that will get you locked up for the rest of your life, it would be better to spend the rest of your life in jail than to spend the rest of your life abusing in your freedom and in eternity in hell. God offers forgiveness. We sing this song, To God Be the Glory. One of the lines in the songs, it's such a kind of a, a joyful song, To God Be the Glory. You know the song? And then we sing this line, and every time we sing I'm like, whoa, did we just hear that? The vilest offender who truly believes. Did you hear what we just sang? <laughs> the vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The floodgates of salvation are wide open. To the abuser in this room, turn to Christ now. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. And you have salvation. And for the sufferer, come to the refuge of Jesus Christ. Come to the refuge of his judgment. Come find in the gospel, the God who forgives you and also deals with your shame. And it's the God who in verse 17 will judge. He will make things right. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We all need a Savior. You know, we could talk about the abuser. We all need a Savior. See, the problem is, if I evaluate myself based on other people, I might feel pretty good. You know, I could look at the quote-unquote abuser and be like, I'm actually, you know, probably going to heaven. Right? Well, that's kind of like me playing basketball with Chapman, who's in first grade. He's pretty good. All right? When I play against Chapman, honestly, I, I kind of think maybe I should try to walk on to some NBA team. Like, I've, I'm feeling like my spin move is out of this world. It is amazing. Like, every time he shoots, I block it. It's just unbelievable. 
But see, if I were to play against one-on-one, let's say against Wemby, if you know Wemby, he's like 10 feet, 6 inches, plays like a point guard, um, I would be like, okay, I'm never going to play basketball again. You know what I'm saying? And this is what we do is we, we evaluate ourselves based on people that we think we're better than. And so we actually don't see ourselves as a wretched sinner in need of a glorious redeemer. We see ourselves as pretty good. And Jesus is just a part of my life. Man, I heard a preacher just recently, say, he said, he said to, to say that uh, it's a travesty to say that Jesus is a part of your life. Oh, what a high view of yourself you must have. He's just a part of my life. He's a good friend. He's my best friend. No. No, I am a wretched sinner. How do I know that? It's because I don't compare myself to other people who I think I'm better than. The standard is God himself. That's the whole point here. The standard is the holiness. So when we encounter Christ through his word, we encounter the holy. We encounter the, the just. We encounter the righteous one. And when we see Christ, our first response is not, that is my homeboy, our first response is, I am a wretched sinner, what must I do to be saved? And then when we get to that point, we see, oh, we're not, we're not leaving anybody with negativity. No, we see that Christ is a wonderful Savior who saves to the uttermost. There is more forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in you, said Richard Sibbs. Amen? There is no sin that Christ cannot forgive. Come to the Savior, and what you discover is that you're forgiven of your sins. You're placed into Jesus. You now have the full adoption as a son of God, receiving all and every spiritual blessing right now on this earth. God loves you in Christ. You are valuable you are his child, and one day, even beyond this death, he will raise you from the dead. How is this possible? It's because Christ took your judgment. You see, none of us evade judgment. None of us are, live a good enough kind of life to where when the judge comes that we're just kind of like, you know, we just barely missed it. Got nicked by a little bit maybe, but just for the most part, I'm okay. No, we deserve judgment as much as anybody because we are sinners against the holy God. Cosmic treason. There's, there's a, a, an old story that's been told, and I may have used this before, I don't remember, uh, but pioneers were uh, going across uh, some Midwestern state, and they're going across this massive plain, and they've got all their gear, and everything's very flammable, by the way. Just keep that in mind. And so they're, they're traveling, and they see, to their horror, this massive line coming from the west of fire. All of the tall grass that they're walking through is just burning. It's all on fire. And it is moving fast toward them. They are about to be set up in flames, and so one of their leaders has this great idea, and he says, quickly, light a fire behind us. And so they light a fire in the grass, and the, the fire begins to move. 
And then he, now, that, now that the grass is burned, he says, okay, now everybody quickly move into the place where the fire has been. They all move in, and they're standing there, and as the flames get closer, one little girl is freaking out, and she says, Mommy, is, is, is this going to be okay? Are we going to be safe? And her mother responds, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. Don't you understand that in the gospel, the flames cannot reach us? Because we're standing where the fire has been. We're standing in Christ where the fire has been, who has taken our judgment. And so there is no judgment left because we're in him. We're united, united with his death. We're united with his resurrection. Oh, God will judge every evil. God will right every wrong. And in the gospel, that is all true. And what's also true is this, is that all who are in Jesus Christ are in a place where the flames cannot reach them. On the cross of Jesus Christ, we see our sin. Was it my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? His dying breath brought me life. Behold, it is finished. He's coming again. And when he comes again, there is a definitive line that he will draw in the sand. And he's coming as the judge to judge the wrongdoer, to judge the oppressor, to judge the abuser. There is a place that the oppressed can be comforted, and that is through hoping in his word. Through hoping in his word. God will act in justice. And those who today currently act in injustice and violence and oppression will one day fill up the cup of judgment against them and they will receive it and drink every bit of it. But those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and see that Christ drank the cup of judgment that you deserve on your own behalf and he drank every bit of it will not see eternal suffering. So how then do we live in this cruel world and take a deep breath and stand with joy and confidence. And receive every moment as a gift from God. God sees and God knows. That's how. Dear survivor, God sees and God knows. God is here with you. We are here with you. We stand with you. And healing will come. Vindication will come. Without God, the power is in the hands of the oppressor. But with God, there is a judge with a greater power. You see, Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. There is a name that is greater 
There's a name above every name, that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a name that is greater than all of the powers of this world, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, and his power is made perfect in weakness, meaning when I am weak, he is strong. Even if I'm thrown into a Roman jail, shackled by my ankles, I can sing at the top of my lungs because his power is made perfect in my weakness. There is joy even in oppression because we know that there is a judge. There is joy even in oppression, because we know that God is still in control. There is joy even in oppression, because we know that God is mighty to save. Somebody say amen. Oh, the temporary oppression and injustice of man can hurt, but the flames of God's judgment cannot touch us. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life, an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all might come in. So praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father. Great things he has done through Jesus the Son. And give him the glory. Great things he has done. Amen.